why why does everything why does the u need to be triple braced why is this is this so is this font falling over on itself that it needs double braces in its o q s v the question mark the ampersand the parentheses look like a bat <laughs> signal Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Interrogang Podcast, your weekly shot of typography news and notes, where we'll share with you some new type releases from the past week and what has got us thinking in the world of type design and creativity. The Interrogang Podcast is an extension of Proof & Co., a website dedicated to the ever-changing landscape of independent typography and bridging the gap between type designers and type consumers through insightful content and research. I'm your host, Joshua Dick, along with Interrogang co-host, the incredibly talented and committed type enthusiast, and a man whose voicemail has been full going on three years now, Kyle Reed. How you doing, Kyle? Uh, doing great. And I'm pretty proud of that voicemail thing. It's hard to get a hold of you. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an exclusive guy. <laughs> Here in the Interrogang, we hope to serve as conversation starters getting you thinking about new things in exciting ways, or old things in deeper ways. We'll be referring to the Proof & Co. weekly newsletter in this and every episode, which you can subscribe to at proofco.xyz to use as a visual reference. We are now in week 24, 2021. Week 24 of 2021 was full of some fantastic releases that found me reaching for my wallet, to be honest. Uh, so let's get down to it. First of all is Maro, which is a razor-sharp stencil typeface from Typotech. Typotech has taken a rather fascinating approach to creating a stencil typeface here, describing Maro like this. Quote, a stencil typeface that follows the logical contrast principles of letter construction until the shape is fractured at its narrowest point. I think a majority of stencil typefaces out there cut their stencil forms in a way that graffiti artists or road pavers would. You know, like as few breaks as possible, and they're in standard or unthoughtful places, like north and south on an O or something. Uh, Maro puts a little thought into it to make a pretty different beast. And they basically take the stress and contrast of the typeface to a logical conclusion uh, on the thin side. So they put breaks in where optically the type would be at its thinnest anyway. Uh, it makes there some really interesting characters, like the five uh, it's just missing the left side altogether because that's the thinnest point, but it's still legible. It's kind of nice. Um, so it's got sharp angular serifs, imaginative letter construction, and just enough information to be surprisingly and satisfyingly legible. It's available as a family of eight fonts, so four weights of Roman and italic. Second in the rundown today is Figure, the latest typeface family to come out of Fort Foundry. So Fort Foundry has updated their site this week and dropped figure to mark the occasion. Fort has seen, uh, seemed to coin a new term with this release, which I'm really into, quirk horse, which is a play on workhorse types. Um, I take it to mean a workhorse with personality. Kind of love this term. Uh, figure is a sturdy quirk horse sans inspired by Gothic wood type of the 19th century. It has a subtle weight contrast, uh, throughout the glyph set and lands as a collection of four widths from condensed to extended. You can get a great sense of that wood type inspiration, uh, setting lines in all caps for display, for example. 
Um, but I also think Figure finds itself right at home you know, on the pixelated phone screen with a certain warmth added to the digital realm, which is evident when you set kind of sentence cases in the lighter weights. Uh, so it's got real versatility left and right. As a foundry built on a reputation for well-executed personality fonts, this release from Fort is a stark move towards a deeper catalog of workhorse, sorry, quirkhorse fonts and a more widely acceptable, uh, or uh, sorry, applicable set of fonts. Uh, so good to see Fort evolve in such a big way. Okay, I just need to interject here on the very important fact that Quirkhorse does not work for me. No. That sounds that sounds like a stallion with a hobby. That doesn't really work for me <laughs> as... That's like, oh, that horse is painting. That's a Quirkhorse. Doesn't really work to describe a font to me. And I just felt, felt it was important that I weigh in right here. Your opinion is valued, Josh. Thank you. And lastly, Typemates has released an epic collection of four type families this week. Grotto Grotesque, Grotto Classic, Gratimo Cla Grotesque, and Gratimo Classic. So you can see how this collection is kind of parsed out, but each family is built under s similar rules and conditions to each other, but with different stylistic attributes that give it a classic or grotesque classification. Stylistically, Typemates describes their Fantastic Four here as a celebration of circular shapes and geometry over optical corrections. In order to, to accomplish this superfamily, they also coined a new word, which, Josh, I think you'll like if I can say it correctly. Here we go. They made a set of dizygotic twins, which means two pairs of two. Pretty simple, but a great word, uh, especially to see in fonts. Anyway, there's a, a lot to unpack with this mega release from Type from Typemates. Uh, I highly recommend y'all go out and check them out. I'm very proud of you for, that you got it. Ooh, good one. Oh, I see some heads shaking. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Josh? Surely there was something that caught your eye this week. So I have a little bit of a, of a rabbit hole that I went down. Uh, that says, uh, There's a lot of pieces to this. In the newsletter this week, uh, you have a link to a great set of videos that are talking about the evolution of typography in Wes Anderson films. That's right. From Linus Bowman. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Very interesting, very fun stuff. But it got me thinking just on uh, typefaces in film in general. And so I was digging around the good old internet uh, looking at that. And of course, there's plenty of stuff out there. A lot of people have focused on the really classic, great uses of type in credits in film. Absolutely. There's a whole lot of good stuff. So it got me thinking, I was trying to dig out some some off the beaten path, some attempts at type quirks in the in the film industry that just maybe you haven't heard of before. And so I wanted to highlight a couple that I found. Um, first is a recent movie, the 2018 film The Favorite, which this actually has some notoriety for either being loved or hated mm -hmm. because uh, this was... The design was created by uh, Vasilis Marmatakis. I th believe I'm pronouncing that correct. It's a it's a great design, but the the main quirk is the spacing in the words. Uh, everything is done on a on the same square or rectangular block. Right. And in the title cards throughout the film, that is a very striking effect. Mm -hmm. But they use it again in the final credits 
which makes the final credits all but unreadable. And so there's a lot of contention over, is this really ingenious? A lot is written about how great this is. A lot is written about how not great this is. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, the next I wanted to highlight, I discovered from one of my favorite TV shows, Mystery Science Theater 3000. They did a film once called Deathstalker and the Warriors from Hell, a 1980s sword and sorcery fantasy film that is... A film you can go out and rent, I think. I'm sure you could buy it for a buck and a nickel. <laughs> and uh, it's not a great film. And the <laughs> the font used in the opening credits is bonkers. And it's an it's a an attempt to do too much, and uh, and tell too much, and I did some digging. It's a font called Primitive, mm -hmm. and I do encourage everyone to look for it. It takes every capital letter and double or triple braces it. It has weird lumps and tumors throughout its uh, entire library of glyphs. It it's just. It's not great, and it's barely <laughs> readable for this attempt to be this grand design that it just isn't. Um, and then the third example I wanted to bring up is a very recent. I've been enjoying uh, the new Marvel show Loki. Second week in a row, I bring up a Marvel property, so tells you what I'm into. And so this has also been a little contentious, I know, in the type community. But I want to say, so I've been watching it, and in the opening titles, when it brings up the word Loki, it spells it out, and the letters are constantly changing, mm -hmm. and they never match each other. Not just moving, uh, but changing styles completely, width, and weights, time periods, yeah. weights, uh, and the L is always different from the O, from the K, from the I. And I think that I was watching this and thought that was a really cool way for typography to be part of the story, telling the story. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Loki is the god of mischief. He's traveling through time in the show. We don't know what he is, where he is, when he is. So it's kind of cool that we don't know where or when what the, the typeface in right. the opening credits is going to be. And so I looked this up, wondering if someone had written about the fonts used or any of that, and discovered that there is vitriol in uh, over this logo. You, I, to be fair, from when they released it in 2019, perhaps mood the mood has changed. Yeah. Um, but I was very surprised, and and people calling it an abomination. And there are plenty of memes, and I do recommend googling the. Uh, Loki logo memes. They are very <laughs> funny, but there there was a lot of hatred towards this idea that the the design is so chaotic. Yeah, and they felt it not a worthwhile uh, reason that he is the god of mischief to justify what they were considering a such a horrible design faux pas. Uh, and so that just surprised me because I. I come down on the side of I think it works. Yep. So those were my those were my discoveries of some fun off the beaten path and perhaps works or doesn't work, but it tried something bold that I found in film. That's obviously far from an exhaustive list, but just some fun ones. Yeah, and I think the the key phrase that you just used was they tried. They tried something new, put something out there, um, whether it falls on its face or is a huge success. 
uh, you know, depends on a lot of different things, especially in each of these cases. But, um, you know, there is something to be said for not only pushing the, bra- pushing the bounds, but breaking a couple of rules. So then let's take this into a bigger conversation. Uh, Kyle and I were talking about this, and we were wondering about just this idea of rule-breaking in typography. When it's okay, when it's not, is it ever okay? Is it just downright ignorant? Mm -hmm. Um, Because here we have three examples that I just talked about where some some basic rules were broken, spacing or legibility or uh, uniformity, Mm -hmm. and they were all trying to serve a greater purpose. Yep. Uh, Is that a bold gesture or one that was bound to fail? So let's start with this conversation of breaking the rules in type. And I guess we need to start, Kyle, with defining the rules. Yeah. This is going to be a, a pretty subjective thing, but... What do you think are just some hard and fast, every type designer knows these, you should follow these laws of typography? Yes. Laws of type design. Uh, Right on. Yeah. So there are obviously loads of rules of type design. Some of them are written in stone. Some of them are unwritten rules, like in baseball. Some of them uh, not everybody's heard of. Some of them everybody's heard of and doesn't care about. Um, There's a lot, a lot of quote unquote rules in designing typefaces. Uh, but there are a couple of standard concepts that can sum up all these rules. And uh, to me, these five ideas are uh, kind of central in you know, what is good or considered good typography, useful typography or um, interesting or applicable typography. Number one is, is uniformity. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that when you're making a typeface, you're making a set of letters, not just a set of beautiful letters. Uh, I think that's a Matthew Carter quote, and I probably botched it, but uh, there is, you know, uniformity is at the heart of a typeface. Lettering, it, you can go crazy on each letter and be something totally different, but the consistency to a line of text is what makes it visual language and not just fancy writing. Um, Number two is spacing. How those uh, uniform black on white or white on black forms end up next to each other creates a relationship. And, um, you know, spacing is just as important as creating the glyphs themselves. So uh, that's something that a lot of people mess with. Some people see that as a rule to be broken. Mm -hmm. But spacing is an inherent part of typography that you just can't ignore. Third is legibility. Um, this is obviously up for a big debate. I think there's a lot of people out there that don't um, care that much about it. Uh, graphic designers especially have this debate mm-hmm. over whether a typeface uh, can be used legibly. But in, the, in, this, in this context of creating a typeface, legibility is kind of core and important. So you, your font is something that ultimately wants to be read. So legibility and readability are our core tenants. Um, communication is number four. Uh, how you're communicating is just as important as what you're communicating. And how you're communicating is the job of the typeface. What you're communicating is the job of the writer. 
So when designing a typeface, you have to be responsible for that, how the, the language is being communicated side of that equation. Uh, and lastly, attitude or style is uh, something that I think we, I would consider a, a core rule for, for typography. We have loads of genres. A lot of people try to classify fonts all the time. Um, there's this human desire to organize and categorize the wide width and breadth of, of typography. Um, so when you're designing a font, attitude of the, of the letters, the style of the letters, what genre you're in, um, that's a, a core rule. And uh, when any of, these, any of these five principles of type design are, are broken, uh, you can start to either get something really great or you can start to get something really ungreat. And um, there are some graphic designers out there that have made their name off of breaking all of these rules. Um, and there are lots of people out there that really respect when all of these rules are followed to a T. So, right. um, yeah, that's a full set. I think a good place to start with if we're talking about rule breaking. And we've seen, even in the past 15 weeks of doing this podcast, examples of, if not breaking these rules, pushing on these rules. Yes. We've discussed uh, different fonts. We discussed DJR's Extendomatic, which mm -hmm. was pushing the boundaries of what you can do with a variable font. Spacing. My old, yeah. my old friend, Nouvelle Noir, which <laughs> admits it's not legible. Uh but these are, and these are examples where the font is, the creator of these font is making it clear that we're seeing what we can do and push the boundaries. We're not just breaking the rules and saying we're good. Right. So if we're looking at, say, using the example of these uh, movie fonts or show fonts that I brought up, which we will yep. have a link in the newsletter uh, to screenshots of these so you can see what we're talking about. Um, are these risks worth taking? Because obviously, as we see with these, if you take these risks, you're going to get some crap because the internet exists. And obviously they got away with it. They were in the final product. Mm -hmm. But is that a risk? Usually, is that a risk worth taking? Yeah, it, this is something that uh, is important to address. The, right now we're talking about people who use type as opposed to design type. Mm -hmm. Um, and each one of them addresses those five principles, uh, that I mentioned, uh, in their own way. Um, but in the case of Loki, that was the designer choosing on a conceptual basis to right. break a couple of rules, uh, and how they were using typography. Um, and we can have a totally separate conversation about folks who design typography and try to break the rules. Um, but uh it, yeah these cases are, are really good examples of of yeah let's stick with use as as our base for this discussion exactly um so yeah it's true you have to consider are those risks worth taking when you're looking at typefaces and how they're communicating um josh we we uh kind of broke it down into the core question of the core of this other bigger question which is is rule breaking courageous is it hubris or is it stupid? <laughs> That's right. I think this is a core question. I think this even moves away from uh, use of type and is basically a good question to ask yourself in any <laughs> facet of life. 
is your choice to break the rules courageous? Is it hubris or is it just plain stupid? Yep. So what would you say, uh, either talking about your personal view or or whatever you, however you want to frame this, but what do you see rule breaking as? I personally see it as courageous if, and I have a clarifier on this, mm-hmm. if you have the skills to back it up. Right. If you're operating outside of your scope of ability, it's probably stupid <laughs> to break the rules because uh, you're probably not doing it with any deft level of skill. Um, but I personally think rule breaking is there for a reason. It's uh, Rules are made to be broken. I do believe that is an idiom that you can uh, kind of harness and, and own. Um, and it takes courage to say, I'm not going to do things the way that they were totally outlined to do. Um, but yeah, you have to take stock of your own skill set and say, can I actually land that plane? Can I get that done? Right. When we're talking about the use and particularly the use, say, in film, it's really about serving the greater purpose of the story you're trying to tell. You are part mm-hmm. of that enterprise to tell the story, which is why I like the Loki example. I think it's a cool way for typography to be part of the game. Yes. And in that case, I would classify that as courageous because it was not it's not a conventional choice. Uh, but it is something that's striking and obviously getting people talking. At least right. it's getting us talking. Yeah, all those people talking out there um, who were in revolt of it would have you think that it was stupid to break those rules. Right. But only in retrospect or in the in the presence of co- total context can you really make that judgment. Right. And so when you're using fonts, you are making design decisions. You are. Exactly. And, and that's the real key because that's part of, I think, my frustration too, seeing the animosity towards the Loki design when it came out, it seems pretty simple to ask the question, okay, why would they do this? And still, you may may to this day say it's not a good enough reason to say he's chaotic, he's all over the place, and so the fonts are too. Mm -hmm. I buy that. That's maybe Might be a little on the nose, but it works. Might be a little on the nose. But at least it you can answer the question, why did they do this? Yes. There are examples, plenty of examples. And I think even the other two that I highlighted, the Deathstalker and the favorite one, are harder to answer the question, why did you do this? Mm-hmm. With the the favorite in the f- end credits, you completely remove legibility. You completely take away from the work of the people on the film because we can't read their names or their <laughs> jobs. Yeah. So you're not serving the greater purpose. Yes. In the case of Deathstalker, you have removed legibility, you've added crap that doesn't need to be there, and you've done nothing to get us in the the mood of this crappy mm-hmm. fantasy 80s flick. <laughs> and so that's the real distinction, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... Uh, Anyone who's ever created anything is listening to that and thinking, yeah, duh. Right. But I think sometimes that is that takes a back seat to uh, some of the design decisions you make. You've always got to keep the purpose and the why at the forefront. That's right. Yeah, ultimately, typography is uh, a set of desi- design decisions, and you can't just do whatever you want. Right. You do have to... Uh, you know, any t- application of typography is a decision, and to judge it, 
you should know the entire context and conceptual backing um, for it to be considered courageous or good work uh, or successful rule breaking. Um, if I mean, I, I imagine when that came, that Loki thing came out in 2019, uh, everybody was like, yeah, my sixth grader could do that. Just draw right? a bunch of different fonts. Like that's, you're not seeing the full context there. That is exactly uh, a complaint I saw that someone said my sixth grader could, could <laughs> cut this out of magazines. Yes. Was the, was the quote. Right. And that's, that just shows the limited imagination of a lot of uh, internet trolls. <laughs> so let me take this conversation a little bit in a different direction. Uh, Kyle, do you feel that in general, mm-hmm. are type designers too safe? Ooh, that's a good question. Or do you see a lot of intentional rule breaking to push further? If we're going to jump back to the type design side of this equation instead of the type use, good point. I, I should yeah. have made that that clarification a little clearer. That yes, I'm talking I'm talking more about uh, just the intention, the rule breaking intentions of type designers now. Yeah, I okay. So this is going out on a limb because I think type designers have been debating this for you know each one of their generations uh but i would say that on the whole yes type designers these days are too safe um i think that there's an economic advantage to being safe so right seeing that type these days is really a more of an economic product than it is an artistic one pete you're going to find a lot of safe typefaces right i think we've discussed this we've discussed it that people need their their sensible serifs yeah. or their clean sans because that's what they need to use. Right. But it, I mean, you saw a lot of typefaces back in the twenties in the thirties, uh, even in the sixties and then in the seventies with photo lettering, like there was an explosion of really expressive risk taking. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of that. So not everybody is a safe, mm-hmm. uncourageous designer, but I think we're going to about, you know, I think we're about to see, um, you know, how courageous type designers can be. There's been some kind of permission given in the last few years uh, to let people start to be adventurous again. It's kind of exciting. Do you think, and and again, this is coming back to type design, uh, is the greater risk being too careful or being too crazy? Yeah, that's a really extent, existential thought. I think the greater risk is to be too careful. I think when people see adventurous type design or adventurous creative work of any kind, they can at least see it and respect it as being, okay, they put themselves out there, you know? So when someone sees a piece of very unadventurous type design, completely forgettable, uh, that's just unfortunate. So the greater risk to me is not being risky enough. I might argue the other side on that one in that, in that the I guess it's I guess it's how you define risk, which we don't have to go into a bullet point of how we define risk. Yeah. But um, but if you look at something that's too crazy, if you make something that's pushing on these rules, people are going to notice that. Like I said, you're you're gonna hear it from the internet, from Twitter. You're you are putting yourself out there to hear about all the ways that it doesn't work or it blows. If you're too careful, if it's if you're really aiming for usability and yeah. risking being bland, well, someone's going to see that and be like, okay, I can use that. So I don't know where I see as much risk to 
even if I'm doing what's already been done, mm-hmm. it can be used. Whereas if I push myself into something that I don't know if this can be used, I hope so. I hope it is the next big thing. But that's if right. it isn't, then it's just not going to go anywhere. I think that's the the definition of being courageous. It, you are taking right taking a risk there and going into the unknown. It may not ever be useful or used, but um, at least you went there. Or that's maybe cool. it's the definition of being stupid. That's what we're just not sure. <laughs> there is a fine line between courageous and stupid. Two sides of the same coin, I guess. <laughs> that's that's a great line. That's it for this week's Interrogang. Special thanks, as always, to Techmaster Andrew Spheris, and extra special thanks to Eric Reed for editing assistance on this episode. Original music featured throughout the episode was composed by Andrew Spheris. The Interrogang podcast can be found on our website, proofco.xyz slash podcast, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere you find your podcasts. If you want to receive more type news and notes, head to our website and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, follow us on Twitter at proof underscore and underscore co, or email us at hello at proofco.xyz. If you have any questions for us, or have any thoughts on what we discussed in any of our episodes, or if you've ever ridden a quirk horse, we'd love to hear from you. As always, thanks for being a part of the Interrogang. We will see you next week! Kyle, I, I am mad at myself that I forgot to mention the MST3K line that they call it Extra yes. Stuff Germanic. That's right. Uh, extra I, Stuff Germanic is such a good label. I do too. I, I, I'm mad that I forgot that one. <laughs>